Welcome to the You Rising podcast, where you have the opportunity to meet some of the remarkable people that are helping us achieve new heights at the University of Utah. I'm Ruth Watkins, president of the university, and my special guest today is Dr. Mike Good. Mike is the senior vice president for health sciences. Welcome, Dr. Good. Thank you. I want to begin by expressing really sincere gratitude for what you and your health team have done over the past weeks at, in Utah. Your uh, accomplishments have really been remarkable in patient care and in testing. Tell me a little bit about how our health providers are holding up under the pressure of the current moment. President Watkins, we really do have an amazing team of health professionals that make up University of Utah Health. I've just been so inspired and so uplifted by just the tremendous things are, that are happening. First of all, Many of us are wearing white ribbons to recognize those on the front lines, those that are taking care of COVID patients in our emergency rooms, our intensive care units, and our, on our hospital wards. And they are amazingly resilient individuals. And overall, in perhaps the most challenging times I've ever seen in my three and a half decades in medicine, I'm just so proud and can't say enough about our team. I think they're holding up well. We have a wonderful resiliency center where professionals help us as a team stay focused on the positive, remember to take breaks and to make sure we connect with the family and all of the things that keep our lives whole and help put the current situation into the context um, of our human experience. So between starting with a great team and then having great professionals like our resiliency center, just couldn't be more proud than the University of Utah Health team. I'm so pleased to hear that. And I wanna join you in expressing that pride. Remarkable people. And of course, we will succeed against this virus because of our health providers. So we're grateful for that. Now, I know everyone who's listening to this podcast wants to better understand this pandemic and is particularly interested in knowing where you think we are in terms of our fight against coronavirus. Can you give us your best insight at the moment about where you think we are in this fight against coronavirus? Yes, the, the state of Utah has come together in an amazing way. Government, business, health, our university. Let me describe some numbers. So when we started carefully tracking in mid-March, it's called the replication rate. Each person who had COVID on average was infecting three other people. And those three people would then infect three more. And those nine would then infect 27. And you can see how you have an exponential rise in the number of people that are experiencing coronavirus infection or the clinical syndrome we call COVID. We then implemented so many things. For example, you know here at the university, we went to a distance education, not having large groups gathered. And that happened in our community, travel restrictions, more recently wearing masks, all of these things that we've done. And we are now showing that the replication of coronavirus in our community is down under one, it's right around one, which means that right now each person who, had, who has coronavirus on average 
is only infecting one other person. So we've gone from three to one and kind of a runaway infection, certainly that we've seen in other cities in our country and around the world, to now where it's uh, one to one. What does that mean for the University of Utah Hospital? Back when the virus was moving around at one to three, we were estimating that 3,000 people would need to be admitted to University Hospital, 3,000. We have 600 beds, and that was very frightening. And uh, in fact, when you saw these scenarios play out in Italy and in New York, New Orleans, Detroit, where the healthcare system just did not have enough hospital beds, ICU rooms, and ventilators to care for those with COVID. That is what we worried about. Because of the amazing way our community has come together and that rate now being down one to one, we're now estimating that if there was a surge of coronavirus, it would be right around 600 patients needing care at University Hospital. And with our surge capacity, we estimate that to be about 600. So we've become confident now that we can take care of the COVID patients in our community. And so again, as a community, extremely successful. And of course now the challenge is, how do we very systematically and carefully figure out what parts of our economy and our society can resume activities in a way prior to the restrictions that have gone in place and not let the virus run rampant through our community. Mm -hmm. So again, I just wanna thank everyone. I wanna thank you for your leadership of our university. I wanna thank our city and county and state leaders because our approach here in Utah uh, has really been exemplary. And uh, I think a lot of people across the country and indeed the world have noticed what Utah's done in this pandemic. It is so reassuring to know that physical distancing, which is difficult for all of us, is uh, working. So thank you for that update. We know testing really matters. And I know that our AREP lab has been very instrumental in that effort, as have been the drive-up test sites that have made it possible and easy for people to be tested. Tell us a little bit about the status of testing, accuracy of testing, and then let's talk a little bit about what might be next in testing. We are so fortunate to have ARUP laboratories as part of the University of Utah. For many years, they've been a national leader and they have really stepped to the forefront in this pandemic. Uh, one of the first sites to have the coronavirus test, that's nasal swab, where we actually look for the presence of the virus in the back of the nose uh, and the throat. We were one of the first centers in the country to have high volume testing. And that's allowed us, that's been part of our success in flattening the curve. The key public health measure is to test and then to isolate those who have coronavirus so they don't uh, inadvertently infect others. Test and isolate. We're currently number eight in the nation for uh, tests per capita. Utah is number 30 out of the 50 states in terms of population, and we're number eight for testing. So clearly another example of 
Utah punching above its weight. And ARUP Laboratories uh, is one of the key reasons why we're able to do that. We also were, I think, innovative in the way we set up our in-car uh, drive-up test sites. Those sites are at our South Jordan Health Center, our Farmington Health Center, Sugar House Health Center, our Redwood Clinic. And in partnership with Intermountain Healthcare, uh, we have a, a joint testing center in Park City uh, at the ice rink. And I also really want to give a shout out and commend Intermountain Healthcare. They've been a big part uh, of this, our successful combating of coronavirus in Utah. And in the specific case of testing, the Intermountain facilities that are located throughout the state have really been the, a key to making sure citizens in all parts of our state are able to get testing. And Intermountain Healthcare has similarly uh, set up testing sites both in car and in facility throughout the state. The in-car is very helpful because it conserves personal protective equipment. The individuals are outside, so obviously people coming there, many of them have coronavirus, and by staying outside, we keep the virus outside. The virus doesn't do very well in outdoor environments. And our professionals are able to don one set of personal protective equipment and to continue to use it uh, for their shift. So to date, all those, everything we've just talked about has been testing for the virus, who is, in, who is having a coronavirus infection and who is not. Uh, last week, ARUP Laboratories, again, one of the first in the country to bring up antibody testing. The antibody testing, uh, you draw a small tube of blood from a vein, like we do for many other blood tests uh, used in medicine. We draw a small tube of blood and uh, we look for antibodies against coronavirus. When someone has a coronavirus infection, about two weeks after they've had the infection, uh, two weeks from the beginning of symptoms, they will develop antibodies, a certain antibody, it's called uh, immunoglobin G, in their bloodstream. And so now, we're starting to test it. Uh, this first week, we've been really testing our health professionals. But in coming weeks, we will begin to test in the community. And there is a belief, and in fact, in other parts of the world, many individuals who have coronavirus who either didn't feel that they were sick or had a very mild flu-like illness and with the antibodies, we know that they were infected, they just didn't realize it. It's also believed that those that have antibodies are better able to ward off coronavirus if they encounter it again, either not getting sick at all, or if they do get sick, it would be a, a very minimal or a much less type of an illness. So you're going to continue to hear a lot about antibody testing, they are an important part of our approach to dealing with this pandemic. And once again, uh, ARUP Laboratories at the University of Utah uh, is at the forefront. It's an incredible point of pride that the University of Utah's ARUP lab is able to do that important work right here with us. That will help so much as we better understand 
antibodies and immunity and begin to return to a version of typical operations as we go forward. And of course, on that front, everybody is wondering about the fall, from fall semester to fall football to what we think will happen with this virus as we look forward. What, what's your sense of current thinking about whether there will be uh, additional waves of COVID-19 and what we might think about for fall? That's a great question. Certainly, history has shown us that when uh, particularly viral infections come into a community and for which there is no vaccine, no therapy, and until the population develops those antibodies, that immunity, the virus does tend to come in waves. And a lot of people point back to the early 1900s and the Spanish flu, uh, where there was a wave in the spring, a relatively calm summer, and then a pretty large wave of virus moving through communities uh, in the fall. I think at this point, my own thinking is we just need to think about how we monitor for and respond to if there were to be a subsequent wave of coronavirus infection. If that replication rate started to go back up, how would we respond? State leaders and others have been thinking about this. And uh, one approach, and it's approach that's used in other countries, to start thinking about uh, stages. Some use color coding, for example, red, orange, yellow, green. You know, kind of red's where we're at now. Stay at home, no travel, you know, only essential businesses are open. And on the other end of the continuum is green, uh, where large group gatherings are allowed, there are no travel restrictions, uh, no face masks, and so on. So I think the trick is figuring out what an orange status might look like and what a yellow status might look like. And that way, as a community, we can gauge our response should there be a small wave or a large wave of coronavirus come into our community, we can similarly gauge our, our response. And so to answer your question about what will uh, the fall bring, I hope it will bring a nimbleness and an organization to, um, if we start classes uh, with groups gathering, and we see the virus developing, we will be much more prepared to detect this virus and to see these waves coming. So if we begin in a classroom setting and we see a wave coming, we may need to switch back to uh, digital education or, or technology-enhanced education. Same thing in the healthcare. We're planning to be able to do face-to-face -face visits, but if a wave of a virus were to come through, we'd have to shift back to telehealth visits. And so, and if we start with the distance education and the virus stays low, how would we transition back to important things in our educational programs, uh, laboratories, uh, you know, performing arts, things where that physical presence is, is, really, is really needed. So I can't exactly tell you what the fall will bring, but I, I hope it brings an organization and a nimbleness to be able to be responsive uh, should we encounter 
future waves of coronavirus. I appreciate that very thoughtful response. And like you, I'm confident in our ability to develop uh, kind of multiple scenarios and to be nimble as an institution. And I'm just as confident in the capacity of our researchers and the researchers around the world to help us understand better transmission and testing options and also treatments that will help us ameliorate the concerns around coronavirus and COVID-19. One of the concerns that uh, listeners may have is what your advice is about masks and wearing masks in public. There's been a little bit of conflicting information about that, and I think it might be helpful to hear from you what your thoughts are. We have evolved as a health community, are thinking about masks. We start with how this virus is spread. The principal route that the virus moves from one individual to another is through a cough or a, a sneeze. The virus is in the respiratory secretions, and, and those include those uh, in our mouth and nose. So when we cough or sneeze, and we get those secretions either on our hands or on a surface or potentially even in the air, uh, although the current thought is most of the transmission is through contact, those secretions on hands, on surfaces. And that's, for example, why the physical distancing recommendations are so important, why for this period in, in history, we're not shaking hands like we, we used to is if I sneeze on my hand, if I cover a sneeze with my hand, and then 10 or 15 minutes later shake your hand, and then you rub your eye, that's kind of how the virus moves from person to person. And it can also do that on surfaces. So the thoughts now with the masking is to help slow down that many of us, particularly for the first day or two, when we have coronavirus, we may not feel ill, we may not be aware that we're, the flu is coming on. And so the thoughts are masks help slow down the transmission of those secretions, particularly for the person that's coughing or sneezing. The secretions are caught in the, in the mask and they don't get on the hands, they don't get on the surfaces. And probably to some degree, they also help the healthy not, uh, if you will, inhale or, or bring those secretions uh, into their mouth or nose or eyes. So apologies for the very uh, medical uh, and, and medical details, um, but I do think, and again, I, I mentioned the red, orange, yellow, green. I do think face masks have a role in some of those intermediate stages. There was a little hesitation early on because we did not have enough face masks for all our health providers. Those who were on the front lines and interacting directly uh, with corona and COVID patients, but through amazing contributions of many, our businesses, our suppliers, our volunteers, our nonprofit organizations, we're in good shape for personal protective equipment. And again, for the community at large, it can be, uh, you know, a traditional face mask, but scarves and other face coverings uh, work well. Again, we're, we're trying to not share our respiratory secretions with, with friends and family. And so even the face masks and uh, scarves and just any type of facial covering will help. I think it is interesting that every one of these steps that we're taking 
from physical distancing to uh, masks to not shaking hands to being very cautious about our exposures in the public, everyone contributes something towards uh, lower rates of transmission. And that's, it's difficult to answer what anyone contributes, but we know that collectively it's making a difference. I think anxiety for people is caused by lack of information and fueled by misinformation. When, if you were guiding people about where to go for definitive sources of facts and truth, where would you point them? Well, again, compliments President Watkins. I think the University of Utah has done a, a remarkable job trying to provide accurate and succinct information both to our university community, but also to our broader city, county, and state community. So I really am pleased with the various websites and materials that are available from the university. I second would ask or refer people to the Utah Department of Health. We've worked extremely well with the talented professionals in the Department of Health, and their website also has a lot of health information and then thirdly, the, the CDC. The CDC site is long and voluminous, and so it can be a little hard to navigate. But those are the kind of the three sites I look to, our own university materials, the Department of Health, Utah Department of Health, and then the, the CDC. It is very challenging. I try to watch about 15 or 20 minutes most of the nightly news because it can be very confusing. Uh, one night, uh, there's a new test that's going to save everything, and the next night, uh, it's found not to be accurate. <laughs> everything has to be uh, walked back. It is sometimes heart-wrenching to see what's going on in some of these other cities that have been so impacted. And uh, so I, I, I think it's a great question, and I would kind of refer people to those websites and to you know, watch a little bit of the, the evening news, but too much of that can also help, uh, lead into that anxiety uh, that you talked about. I agree. Well, one thing that uh, helps us all is to have wonderful colleagues and leaders like Dr. Mike Good, our guest today on the You Rising podcast, a remarkable, talented individual that also provides a lot of support to health and wellness throughout the state of Utah. Dr. Good, thanks for being with us today. We appreciate it. Listeners, thank you for joining us today, and I hope you'll tune in for the next installment of the U Rising podcast. Thank you.